Welcome to another edition of Tim's Takeaway. This is going to be a Tim's Takeaway on pharmacology for the EMT student. That's right, there is pharmacology that is related to being an EMT, although it may be a little bit limited to what most people think that happens in emergency medical services, but keep in mind that you are a medical professional, and therefore we do have to have a better understanding about medications and pharmacological therapy. You know, it is really something that is an important intervention that is available to you as at EMT. And when we give medications appropriately, it can help improve a patient's condition. However, if we fail to administer these medications safely and do them in a competent manner, it can really cause some problems and, and increase uh, serious consequences in mortality and morbidity for our patients, and including death. So some things that we will need to learn to remember. So as an EMT, you can administer medications. Uh, we'll talk about different ways in which you can administer these medications. We will use uh, patient self-administered medications. You know, we can help them with their own medications. And that kind of gets a little confusing. Um, and hopefully this podcast will help break that down and, and give you a better understanding of what we're talking about. We also look at ways in which we have to ask patients about their medications and what they take. We also want to know about the uh, necessary allergies that people may have. And then we also need to make sure that we're taking this information and bringing it to the hospital. You know, in my time as a paramedic, it has been very interesting to me to find out that the number of people who tell me that the hospital will have their medication list and therefore I don't need to see it, it can become quite frustrating. But at the same time, you need to maintain your professionalism, keep your composure, and explain to them in a nice manner that to help them with their current condition, it is really important that you take a look at that medication. Well, how do medications work? So there are some medical terminology definitions that we truly need to take a look at, like pharmacology. What is that? So far we've talked about or we've brought that term up before. And pharmacology is the science of drugs, and it includes what their ingredients may be, what their uses are, and truly how their actions are on the body. Now, a medication is a substance that's used to either treat a disease, maybe prevent a disease, such as a vaccination. And in many times, you, probably sitting there listening to this, are also talking about relief of pain. And you may have taken some Advil, um, Tylenol, um, Aleve, any of those medications, and they're generic substitutes. We'll talk about those later. And you've realized that you've helped those You've taken those to help alleviate some of your pain. Now, pharmacodynamics, big word, but pharmacodynamics is the process by which the medications are actually working on the body. So it can actually change the normal function of the body. And that's why it becomes important for us anytime that we go to give a medication to a patient that we understand the way that it's going to work. An agonist is a medicine that causes a stimulation of certain receptors, right? So 
just like a book, there's going to be an agonist or an antagonist. Or usually you hear that as a protagonist. But anyway, we're getting to the point that an antagonist is the other one, is that this medication binds to a receptor and it blocks other medications or chemicals from actually attaching there. So we'll find out that, you know, uh, probably one of the most common uh, antagonists right now that we are dealing with in today's society is going to be Narcan. And the use of Narcan as an antagonist, it blocks the receptors for uh, the narcotics that somebody may have taken. And agonist is something where it may stimulate the bit, the receptors. An example of this may be a medication known as albuterol or a meter dose inhaler for a rescue inhaler that somebody may be taking in relationship to their uh, breathing medicine. So when they take that, it actually is stimulating a receptor. And oftentimes albuterol is referred to as a beta-2 agonist. And that means that beta means that it dilates and two means that there are two lungs. So it works on the lungs. And if you haven't heard this one before, you know, I may have brought it up before in a previous podcast, but think about this alpha, beta. Um, and when you look at those, if you were to write this down on a piece of paper, sorry, I had something going through my head at the time. Um, if you were to write this down on a piece of paper, what you would see is put A, and then right below that put a B, and then next to the A put a C, and then next to the D, I'm sorry, next to the B put a D. And what you should have is a nice little square, and it says A, C, D, right, I'm sorry, A, C, B, D, so it should be A, C, B, D, and what that means is that alpha constricts beta dilates and then keep in mind that you have one heart and two lungs that's right so if you see something that says alpha 1 or a beta 2 it indicates that alpha is going to constrict and if it has a 1 that means that it deals with the heart and if it is a has a number 2 it would actually then be dealing with the lungs okay just a little thing there to kind of make sure that we remember. So one of the other things that we need to keep in mind and, and be very familiar with is go. We need to keep in mind and go back and take a look at some things and realize that the dosage is something that we have to be aware of. So the dosage is the amount of the medication that is given. And how much medication is given is based off of uh, how much the patient weighs, maybe their age, and what we're looking for to occur, that uh, desired action of the medication that we're administering to them. The action of a medication is the therapeutic effect that this medication is expected to have on the body. So what is it that we're expecting it to do? A contraindication is where a medication is really going to be harmful to the patient or could cause harm to the patient um, or maybe it has no positive effects that are going to happen with it. Now there are things such as uh, just contraindication and then there are things such as an absolute contraindication and a relative contraindication. So an absolute contraindication is when the medication should never ever be given. So as an example, 
if somebody is uh, going to technically receive a medication and you check their vital signs, as you should, and you find out that their blood pressure is less than 100, and from uh, our standpoint here, maybe this is making them hypotensive, and if they're hypotensive, then there is no reason to be given that medication. So the first medication that comes into mind for me uh, from an EMT standpoint is nitroglycerin. Assisting a patient with their nitroglycerin actually is contraindicated if they have experiencing, have or are experiencing hypotension. And we'll see more about that in a little bit. A relative contraindication is when the benefits of really administering the drug outweigh the risk. So you will hear people say, well, it's sort of a relative contraindication. What that means by definition is that we're going to weigh the risk versus the benefit. So as an example, um, an individual may be told that we have to be careful with patients who have asthma in the administration of aspirin. So in this situation where they're going to have chest pain and cardiac related issues, it may be a relative contraindication. So that's where, you know, you need to find out some other issues um, that may be going on because it may meet an absolute or a relative contraindication. Side effects of a medication are usually those that really are uh, not very well desired but there are unintended effects, meaning that it's an action that has occurred that we really didn't want to have happen, but it is also something that we may be able to deal with. So in some cases, it may be that uh, they get a headache. So nitroglycerin is one that has a side effect of causing somebody to have a headache. These could be related to undesirable issues like that. That would be that unintended effect. And therefore, it poses very little risk to the patient, and it will eventually go away. An untoward effect is an, um, an effect that can be harmful to the patient. So if I give a medication to a patient and they uh, have a significant side effect, this could be an untoward effect. So if uh, a medication that a paramedic may administer may actually cause the patient's heart rate to slow down, and it slows down to the point in which they could no longer be beating with their heart and have any type of cardiac output, that would be an untoward effect. Medications have a tendency to be named all over the place, right? Um, well, you know, I had mentioned earlier about, you know, Tylenol and or I'm sorry, Tylenol and Advil and Aleve. Those are all examples of trade name medications. That's what the manufacturer is actually giving the name for. Generic names, though, are things such as acetaminophen, ibuprofen. Those are types of medications that we would see as being generic. Now, keep in mind that when medications are written, a generic name doesn't have any capitalized letters. And a trade name, though, because it is a trade name, it means that there is going to be an, a uh, name with or a capital letter with it as well. So, you know, is there a difference between generic and, and trade names? 
there could be. Um, they're both regulated by the Food and Drug Administration. And uh, is one potentially more uh, pure than the other? Probably not. However, there are some patients that can have untoward or unintended effects with one versus the other. So those have been the things that I have personally seen and have experienced with some of our patients. But, you know, do I have a problem with generic medications? No, not at all. Now, prescription drugs are distributed by pharmacists, and those require a physician's order. And over-the-counter medications, though, do not require a prescription. Now, there are other medications that we usually like to make sure that we keep track of, things such as recreational drugs. You know, do you take heroin? Do you take cocaine? Um, do you take any methamphetamines? Those types of things. What about any type of herbal remedies? Are we talking about a individual during our assessment, we find out that they take medications such as a herbal supplement? What about enhancement drugs? Um, not only steroids, but we also need to find out about any erectile dysfunction medications that patients may take. Vitamin supplements. For a long time, I believed, again, believed is in past tense, that individuals really didn't have to tell me a whole lot about their vitamins because they were vitamins. Well, the reality is that people can overdose on their vitamins as well. So it really becomes important for us to make sure that we find out about our medications that the patients, patients are taking. So any medications that a patient takes can uh, pharmacologically activate, be active and can cause an effect. So what that means is that you can have a drug-to-drug -drug interaction. So one medication can cause a problem when it's taken with another. So one of the ones I always hear about is an individual takes a cholesterol-lowering medication, and if they also take a medication, or I'm sorry, they also wash down maybe that medication with uh, grapefruit juice, this can deactivate it, and therefore it's not going to work. So they just wasted some money. There are various routes of medication, various routes in which we can administer medications. So internal medications are those that enter through the body, through the digestive system. Usually these are things that are like a pill or maybe uh, a liquid form. It could be something like cough medicine, right? Um, these usually are given in, in through the mouth and they tend to absorb slowly. And really, we don't see them used a whole lot in the emergency setting. But um, from an ALS standpoint, from that advanced level, um, you may see that uh, things such as um, ibuprofen or acetaminophen may be given in liquid format to help with fever or pain as well. Um, patient medications also may be um, in liquid form. So not only are they uh, also going to have, we have a parental medications, and these are things that enter into the body by some other means, and this is where that liquid comes in. So this may be through needles or syringes that we need to put together. They become absorbed more quickly, and they usually have more predictable and measurable response. So let's, let's go back to these first two, right? So the enteral medication is going to be something that is giving orally, like cough medicine, okay? So when you take the cough medicine, um, it is going to be taken, and you are going to have so much of it absorbed, but it depends on, you know, 
Did you take it on an empty stomach? Did you take it with food? Did you not take it with food? Did you take it with a specific type of liquid? So there's a, those are factors that can come into play with how well enteral medications are actually um, absorbed through the digestive system. Now, the parental medications, as I said, you know, these things are more predictable because there's really nothing to uh, dilute it down per se. So if it's administered through a vein, it's going to be a lot easier to be able to predict what's going to happen. Absorption becomes another one. So absorption is the process by which a medication goes through body tissues to get into the bloodstream. So a couple of those routes may be PR or per rectum. So this means that this is administered through the rectal area. And remember that the rectum is not the butt. The butt everybody thinks about as being the gluteus maximus and the gluteus minimus. Here we're talking the rectal area itself. And this is where you're going to have a lot of uh, the mucosa is able to help absorb this. Oral or PO is by mouth. This is the way that the uh, medication is entering the bloodstream through the digestive system. And it can take about an hour for this absorption to actually occur. So just as I said earlier, you know, uh, if you're going through um, an IV route versus oral route, things are going to be a little bit different in the way that they're going to be absorbed. Intravenous or IV injection are going to be things that are going into the vein. And right now, this is pretty much the fastest delivery, um, but we can't or don't always see IV medications being used on every medication. Now, one of the, the ones that you're not going to use is an EMT. However, you will probably see as it relates to your uh, interaction with ALS providers, and that is going to be an intraosseous injection or IO injection. This means that it's going into the bone. So someone is putting a needle into the bone, and this is a way that we're reaching the bloodstream. It's actually making it through, through the bone marrow, and it does require usually that we're using a drill um, or we're twisting a needle into the bone marrow. And... Um, this has to get into the marrow itself. Another one would be a subcutaneous injection. Um, this would be something that is going to be given underneath the skin or beneath the skin. And this is usually into the fatty tissue that's between the skin and the muscle. So some sub-Q injections. Um, if you are an individual who knows about getting... Um, Allergy shots, they're usually given in the subcutaneous area. Okay, so they're kind of given more in that fatty area. The IM or intramuscular injections are probably another one that many of us have become used to. These are things that are going into the muscle. This is when a needle typically is going into the muscle and it's absorbed pretty quickly, but not all medications can be administered by the IM route. So one that you may become more familiar with, and actually you are going to become more familiar with, is going to be the EpiPen. So if we give an Epi auto injector to an individual, and we have administered that, it is going through the intramuscular area. Inhalation, you'll probably end up dealing with that one as well. Oh, by the way, we can go back to the mouth, and we can also talk about the fact that you too will be assisting and be able to administer aspirin by mouth. You're able to give that um, as a PO or by mouth. The inhalation 
um, is going to be something that is breathed into the lungs. And one of the areas that a lot of people think about, oh my gosh, what is it going to be? Well, this could be something that is aerosolized or could be part of a fine powder or a spray. But don't forget that when we inhale, we're also talking about that would be a gas. Um, so a gas inhalation could end up being something like oxygen. But usually the inhalation that we're talking about in this case is something that's actually going to be absorbed um, through those aerosolized powders. And that would be something like an albuterol. Sublingual. Here's another one that you're going to be able to do, and that is going to be under the tongue. This is going to be a medication that is placed underneath the tongue, and it's usually allowing that tablet to dissolve. This goes through the, uh, this enters the oral mucosa, and it really ends up being absorbed into the bloodstream, usually within a few minutes. And like I said, nitroglycerin is usually one of the biggest ones. Um, and you may also hear people, and not that you're going to administer this, but people may take a anti-emetic agent, which is something that is going to reduce their nausea and their vomiting. Transdermal is something that is really through the skin. It's usually something like a patch or it may be a paste that is placed onto the, to the skin. It has a longer lasting effect than other routes that we would be using. And you will hear people such as nicotine patches, right? Those are things that a lot of times people will take the nicotine patch to uh, try to stop their addiction to nic nicotine, such as with smoking. Intranasal is going to be one of the last ones that we take a look at. And this is becoming more popular for us today because of the administration of naloxone or Narcan. It is a uh, format in which we can deliver medication through the mucosa and it's inside the nose, right? So the medication is actually pushed through a device that we know is a MAD, an MAD or mucosal atom atomizer device. And it aerosolizes the liquid so that it can be delivered in through the nostril. And it is not being inhaled into the lungs. It's actually being absorbed into the mucosa that is inside the nasal cavity. So a couple ways in which things have been done that way usually is a Narcan, but um, at some point we have seen flu vaccines also administered that way. Medications come in multiple forms, and I had already mentioned a few of them, and it is up to the manufacturer to choose the way that these forms are going to be administered. Right, So they determine the proper route of administration and the timing that the medication, um, therefore, is played with in the, in the release into the bloodstream. And you will hear people say that, oh, you know, they have a long acting or um, it could be a delayed acting type thing, which means that it's going to release its chemical compounds over time. Um, so that's why it's important that we follow what the manufacturers are saying. Tablets and capsules are one of the most common medications that we give by mouth. Usually they're in capsules, um, which are more gelatin-filled. Uh, they may have a liquid or a powder that's in it. And tablets are usually things that are like compressed, so you can think of powders that have been compressed a little bit more. Solutions and suspensions. The solution is going to be a, a liquid mixture of uh, one or more substances that cannot be separated simply. So a... Uh, solution can really be given by any type of route. Um, it, it can't be separated very simply, so it takes a little bit of time. 
where, uh, you know, these solutions may be given. Sometimes these solutions can be given as IV or IM or sub-Q injections. Now, a suspension is a uh, something that you're looking at is more finely ground particles. They are distributed evenly through uh, throughout a liquid. And usually just by uh, shaking or stirring, it does not really dissolve it. So they're separate and they um, usually are filtered at some point. So it's why it becomes important to make sure that a suspension is swirled or shaken before administration. Something that just pops into my head right away starts making me think of, you know, if you were to look at vinegar and oil, right? So if you were to blend those two things together, to blend them together, you have to shake them. And then eventually they will separate over time. A meter dose inhaler is a liquid or a solid that's really broken down to some smaller particles so that it can be inhaled. And this is usually placed into some type of spray canister and it is then administered through the mouth and into the lungs. And each time that that is depressed, it administers the same amount of medications that it's used. Usually this is used for people that are experiencing some type of respiratory illness, or it could be as a result of somebody who has a uh, reactive airway disease or uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, so things such as asthma or emphysema. Topical medications, most of you probably have used this at some point in your life. These include things such as creams and ointments and lotions, and they're usually applied to the skin surface and affect only that area. So if you've had dry skin, you've used a lotion or a cream or maybe even an ointment to actually help uh, with that area. Now, transcutaneous medications are usually also things that we would refer to as a transdermal medication. These are things that are absorbed through the skin. Now, um, these things have an intended site. So unlike the topical medications where the topical medications are only working on a specific area, this is something that actually has the ability to work on the entire body itself. So if you touch a medication with your skin um, and it's a transcontinuous medication, you're probably likely to also have that absorbed. So make sure that you're wearing your gloves and your personal protective equipment. Gels are something that is more semi-solid. Uh, these are things that could be placed through uh, some type of plastic tube. And one of the things that I think about with this all the time is going to be something like oral glucose that we may use for our diabetic patients. And finally, gases. And I alluded to this earlier. Um, it is a gas for inhalation. And this is something that is usually delivered through some type of oxygen delivery device because it is usually the most common. But remember that there are other gases that can be used in, medica in medical uh, affairs. So therefore, we need to make sure that we're using the most appropriate. Now, we need to go and administer a medication. So first off, just to go and administer a medication, you can't just go do it. You have to make sure that you have some form of authorization, whether it's through online or offline medical direction. This is something that is inside of a standing protocol. You always hear people talk about the six rights of a medication. No, not my name, but the rights, R-I-G-H-T-S, the six rights of a medication, meaning do we have the right patient? Are we given the right medication? Are we giving the right dose? 
Are we using the right route? Are we doing it at the right time? And are we then going to document the right documentation, right? Are we going to put the correct documentation in? Oftentimes I hear this one all the time and I hear people say, well, it's the right patient. We only have that person in front of us. Well, keep in mind these are things that are universal, where in the emergency medical services, we typically only have one patient in front of us. And when you're in a hospital, you may have multiple patients. So it becomes important to make sure that we're giving it to the right patient. Another thing is, is that as an EMT, you are assisting with a patient's medication. And what I mean by that is, is that your assisting means that the patient has the medication. You didn't bring it. So there's only certain medications that you may assist with. Nitroglycerin and albuterol may be two examples of those. Okay, so nitroglycerin, you need to make sure that it is the right patient, that it is the right medication, that you have the correct dosage of the nitroglycerin that is going to be given by the right dose. So you're going to be giving one tablet and how are you going to give it? Well, it's going to be underneath their tongue. So that would be sublingual. And we need to make sure that we're giving it at the right time, which means that you need to check the expiration date and you need to make sure that it appears to at least be in good shape. And it means, you know, have we given this to the individual after we have checked their vital signs? Again, another thing with right timing. Then afterwards, you need to make sure that you're correctly documenting this information. Now, medication errors occur. There's just um, a fact of life, right? We are continuing to try to work forward and eliminate all medication errors. That's the goal. The goal is to eliminate all medication errors. The question that you have to ask yourself is, are you really willing to put a number as to what you accept as an error? So uh, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Goldman, I think his name is Brian Goldman, is on TED. He has a TED Talk. And if you wanted to go look that up, please feel free to. If I find that link, I'll put it in the show notes here. But if you go take a look at Brian Goldman talking about the fact that you he compares medical errors to baseball and we consider somebody at like a you know uh, a batter at somewhere around 40 percent is great right they're hitting and they're getting on base 40 percent of the times they're up to bat what if that was us in medicine that'd be horrible those are some of the things that we take a look at. Like we don't know what the correct number is. So we want to make sure that we are doing our best. And remember, we do not want to cause harm to our patients. Over the years, we are experiencing what is going to be referred to as scope creep. And what scope creep is, is that what used to be just a skill that could be used at the paramedic level. Now also has been you is now being moved to the advanced EMT level. And what skills or medications have been able to be used at the AEMT level are now being moved to the EMT level. And this is what we're calling scope creep. So over the time and from at least the time that this is being recorded and, and uh, posted, things could change. You know, so by the time you listen to this, things could change without a doubt. And we are seeing that more and more medications are actually being added to uh, individual scopes. And it depends on each state. 
But there are a few things to remember. First off, from a national standpoint, we have three areas that we look at. We look at peer-assisted medications. This is where you're administering a medication to yourself or maybe to your partner. So if we were exposed to some toxic substance, we may need to use a Mark II kit. Um, if we're talking about patient-assisted medications, I had described that a little bit earlier, where you're helping the patient with their own medications. Now, keep in mind, this is not you putting the tablet in their, in their hand and putting it underneath the tongue. No, you're taking their medication. You are putting it into your gloved hand and you're administering underneath their tongue the way that it was supposed to be done, right? That is assisting the, medica that is assisting the patient with their medication. And then finally, EMT-administered medications. These are the medications that we can administer to patients, and we bring them with us. Aspirin, oral glucose, oxygen, those are the types of things that we're talking about here. So in some, in some cases, medical control is going to give us a list um, or describe what we may or may not be able to do. So some of the things to take a look at is that Oral medications, we need to consider the fact that they uh, do have a great advantage of being ease of access. The problem with them, though, is, is that the digestive tract can be easily affected by a lot of food and stress as well as illness. You know, if you're sick and you are having what everybody refers to as that wonderful little GI bug, you have the nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, taking something by mouth is probably not the best thing for you. One medication that we have seen administered in the out-of-hospital setting that is done by the oral route is called activated charcoal. Now, activated charcoal is something that is usually given um, to help absorb poisons that may have been ingested um, by mouth, so maybe it was an overdose. And they may also have inside them a compound called sorbitol which gives a laxative effect. So I want you to think about this. Activated charcoal, charcoal first off is used all over the place for a bunch of different things. It's a filter. You can think of it as a way in which you cook uh, stuff on a grill. Well, we're taking charcoal and what we're doing is we're actually trying to absorb or bind the poison inside the digestive system. And when we do this, um, it then has to move the rest of the way through the digestive system. So this can have a tendency to cause constipation, and that's why they add the sorbitol to actually help because it has a more of a laxative effect to it. This is administered by mouth, but very much of the time it is uh, something that is not appealing to patients because it looks disgusting. It's very thick. Um, and it is just looks like somebody made a slurry out of a uh, of a whole bunch of charcoal grill um, briquettes. It can and most likely will stain any of your clothes. So it's very important that anytime that you go to give this, that you are going to give it to a patient who um, you also are wearing a gown. They cannot have any type of altered mental status because this increases their risk of aspiration or another way of saying it goes down the wrong pipe and goes into the wrong spot. They cannot have ingested any type of acid, alkali, or even a petroleum product. Now, the bottom line, though, is, is that we don't see an awful lot of activated charcoal being administered today. Um, there just hasn't been a lot of proven benefit to it. Um, so check your system and find out whether or not this is something that is um, still even used in your area. Oral glucose is something that we see everywhere. 
um, as a result of some of the uh, costs of some of these things. I have seen some states, particularly Pennsylvania, where I'm from, is actually utilizing um, the possibility of utilizing cake icing, uh, which may be a little bit cheaper in some cases. And it is something basically that is a sugar that we're administering to somebody to make it used for energy. We're trying to help the person maintain normal metabolism, and it also is working well with their brain cells. Hypoglycemia, hypo meaning low, glycemia meaning bl the blood sugar or the, uh, the sugary substance, right, um, is something that we're trying to use glucose, this oral glucose for. So it counteracts the effects of that hypoglycemia. And you can give it um, by mouth, and this is a gel that really is designed to be able to be spread over the mucosal membranes between the cheek and gum. And it also can be available as glucose tablets. Now, you never want to administer any oral medication to an unconscious person or to one who is unable to swallow or protect their airway. So I've seen uh, some folks say, you know, can we put them on their side and put it down there between their cheek and gum? It can absorb that way and probably would be something to be used as a last resort. Um, aspirin. Aspirin is something that um, is used primarily in the out-of-hospital setting for um, inhibiting platelet aggregation, which means that we use it for patients that are having some type of potential heart attack. It is, uh, there are some contraindications to it. So first off, it should not be given to children. Um, it should not be given to people who have an, an allergy to aspirin. And we really shouldn't be giving it to people who have any type of bleeding disorder as well. Sublingual medications, advantages here are the fact that it's easy to, to talk with awake and alert patients and then advise them to put this pill underneath their tongue. It really does absorb pretty quick. Um, a disadvantage is, is that um, it does require us to check their airway quite frequently, and it cannot be used if the patient is not cooperative or really if they're unconscious. So you can't slide it underneath their tongue when they're unconscious. Most common medication that we see this way in the out-of-hospital setting is nitroglycerin. And a lot of cardiac patients carry this nitroglycerin to, nitroglycerin to help relieve any type of angina that they may have. Now, what nitroglycerin does is it actually increases the blood flow by uh, relieving the spasms in those coronary arteries. And this is causing them to dilate and they relax and uh, we help increase, hopefully, increase the blood flow that is there. Before you administer it, it is quite necessary, as I described earlier, to make sure that we are checking their vital signs. They have to have a systolic blood pressure of at least 100, and they, uh, otherwise, nitroglycerin, because of that dilation, can cause some major problems. So if they have a adequate blood pressure, you make sure that you sit or lie them down, get their head elevated a little bit before, the, uh, before taking this medication. It does help avoid any syncope. If there is a drop in the blood pressure that occurs and they are feeling dizzy or sick, then you need to have them lay down. Get a medical order or follow your local protocol to try and tell you what's going on with that. It can have um, fatal interactions with people who may be taking it in erectile dysfunction medication. Um, if they've taken this within the last 24 to 48 hours, so sildenafil is Viagra, um, Tadalafil is Cialis, and Vardenafil is Levitra. 
And so therefore, we need to make sure that we're checking this with both men and women. And this means that not only do people take these medications for erectile dysfunctions, they may also be taking this as something for pulmonary hypertension. Um, the administration here is of a little tablet, so it's placed underneath the tongue and allows it to dissolve. Another way that this thing is also given is by a metered dose spray. Um, so it is a little spray bottle, and when you press and depress the button down or uh, the little sprayer down, it administers a metered amount of the medication. An intramuscular medication that we are going to be given has a great advantage of having quick access to the circulatory system without really needing to find a vein. And, you know, trying to find an IV site on somebody is quite difficult at times. And particularly if they're not going to perfuse very well, um, we know that in shock our blood is pulled to the core. So therefore you're not going to see those veins sticking up as well. And a disadvantage is that usually when you give any type of IM medication, it may actually cause a lot of pain. So one of the medications that we use quite frequently for this would be epinephrine. And epinephrine, also known as adrenaline, is a normal hormone that is inside of your body, and it causes that fight-or-flight response, right? So this is when people are going to have the tachycardia and are going to have their blood vessels constrict and their, um, their airway passages, particularly their bronchioles, are going to dilate, right? So it has a alpha constriction part to it. Or I'm sorry. Yeah, it has the alpha constriction part to it, and it also allows the um, the beta effects of the lungs, right? So it causes some dilation. It should be given to patients who are experiencing some form of a life-threatening allergic reaction. And epinephrine can be administered in our cases. We're administering this via an auto-injector, and therefore it is, uh, you know, given typically into the thigh. And usually it's about 0.3 milligrams is how much is administered in the adult dose. And consider that about half of that is actually going to be used in EpiPen Jr. So in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, as an example, it is entirely up to the medical director of the ambulance service to decide whether or not the uh, auto injectors are allowed to be carried by the BLS crew, or do they just rely on the patient having one? Another medication we can take a look at would be the naloxone, which is an IN or intranasal amount, right? So usually this is administered to reverse the effects of an opioid overdose. And uh, we're not going to spend an awful lot of time on this. There is an entire section that is devoted to Narcan administration, um, for uh, those that are in Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, just to give you a little hint that when you give this medication through the intranasal route, you're using the MAD or that atomizer. It's going into one of the nostrils and you're administering um, about two milligrams um, into the patient, which usually is about one milligram in each nostril, unless you're using one of the uh, uh, pre-made ones that um, are going to then be about four milligrams and everything is given in one dose. So this really comes down to what is that? What is it that you have available um, for your dosage? An inhaled medication, as we said earlier, one of our biggest ones is gonna be oxygen and this can be administered um, via a non-rebreather or a nasal cannula and just 
keep in mind, you know, what is that nasal cannula going to be administered at? Two to six uh, liters per minute versus a non-rebreather that is now going to be anywhere between 10 and 15. And if you're going to administer oxygen also via a bag valve mask, then you need to at least have that on a bag valve mask, a minimal of 15 liters per minute. Ideally, it would be somewhere around 25. And just keep in mind that you cannot just place a bag valve mask over somebody's mouth and nose and without squeezing it um, to administer oxygen to them. It doesn't work that way. There's another little thing that I have on, uh, put in my show notes so you can take a look at my YouTube page about the way that you can't do something like that. Meter dose inhalers and nebulizers. These are things that we talked a little bit about earlier where it is a medication that is turned into a fine mist and it is then um, delivered in through, typically inhaled in through the mouth and particularly the nose. Um, and it is something that's pretty fast and, and really relatively easy to get in and it delivers all the way down to the alveoli. The problem with it is, is that it does need to have the patient be cooperative and be able to control their bleeding or breathing, not bleeding. And that can become a little bit of a problem because we're administering this to individuals who are also having trouble breathing. So it may require a little bit of coaching to be able for you to administer the patient their own medication of a meter dose inhaler. Now that meter dose inhaler does require some coordination um, and as I said, it may be a little bit difficult. Sometimes there is a spacer that fits over the inhaler like a sleeve. And um, I think I can just put some more information in the show notes to make sure that you can take a look at a couple videos that will help you recognize how to do that. I better start writing these things down so I can make sure that I put them in. Anyway, patient medications, some things that you can really take a look at include the fact that a uh, patient assessment means that you need to find out about the medications that the patient takes, right? That's part of your ample or your sample history. So your symptoms, your signs and symptoms, your allergies, your medications that the patient is currently taking, it really does provide a means for you to find out what might be going on with our patient. So let me give you an example. When you walk out of the doctor's office, right, you're pretty happy that you just have something that's ongoing on that's 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 there. Um, and what I mean by that is, is that the doctor gave you a medication, therefore a prescription. You're pretty happy about that whole thing. Well, you know, you may not know exactly what was wrong with you. And we know that that doesn't always happen um, or everybody doesn't always ask the patient, uh, sorry, their physician, what may be wrong with them. So we have to take a look at some of these medications and start piecing the words together, right? So as an example, and I'm not spending time on this, but just to give you a nice little um, thought process here, if it ends in P-R-I-L, a pril is probably going to be an ACE inhibitor. An OL, O-L-O-L, is probably going to be something like a beta blocker. And those are two pretty common things that we would have people uh, taking. Another one might be a statin. Those are lipid-lowering medications. So People would use those for cholesterol-lowering issues. Um, and just keep in mind, those are things that you might want to take a look at. Um, you, there's a lot of resources that are out there, and I would encourage you to definitely, definitely go back there and take a look and see what type of medications you may be able to take a look at. Keep in mind, using a uh, cheat sheet or some type of reference to identify what these medications are, there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. 
Medication errors, as I alluded to a lot earlier, is something that is uh, being recognized more. I can't say that we are truly reducing an awful lot because EMS, we don't really see a whole lot of documentation in relationship to this. It has been recognized and we are trying to move forward with it. So we need to make sure that our own environment is not contributing to the errors. Make sure that you can see well. Organizing equipment so that you know where things are at and you're not putting like medications together. So if they're in the same type of bottle or storage container, that they're not going to be different. Use a checklist to be able to help remember why you are giving the medication to somebody. If a medication error does occur, the first thing to do is to take note that you made the mistake. Advise the patient of this right away. And then you also need to uh, notify medical control as quickly as possible to find out whether or not there may be some adverse events that could happen with this. And then, of course, we need to make sure that we follow our own local protocols. It is of utmost importance that you own up to this. And let's find out what the error was. Why did it occur? It's not always something that we're taking a look at that it was your complete 100% fault. And did you follow the rules of the R's of medication? Or was there something else that actually had occurred, right? So slow down, take your time. We need to make sure that we spend 30 seconds to make sure that we're given the correct medication to the correct patient at the correct time. Um, we're given it the right route. And we also need to make sure that we're given the correct dosage with it. Well, I think that pretty much does it for me right here with a Tim's takeaway on pharmacology for the EMT student. And you know what? Take a look at the show notes and see. It should have some links up there for you. And we'll catch you on the next one. Peace out.